Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast, and happy Monday. I'm Charlie Sykes. We've uh, managed to get through a weekend where the former president had a rally in Ohio. We're not going to spend a huge amount of time talking about that. The infrastructure deal is apparently coming back from uh, the, the the dead. Um, in, in case you missed it over the weekend, also, I had a, an account in the newsletter of what's going on in Wisconsin, where the Republican uh, groveling to the uh, the Orange God King continues absolutely unabated. Uh, and of course, uh, the Bill Barr, uh, you know, rep, rep, you know, reputation laundering uh, continues. Uh, so uh, let, we're, we're, we're joined by Josh Kroshauer from the National Journal today. Uh, Josh, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. Good to be back on the pod. So a little bit of a trigger warning here for some of you folks who want this to be a safe space, who want more fan fiction about uh, the Biden administration. I'm, I'm guessing that Josh is going to be a bracing uh, counter to some of that. His latest piece in the National Journal is Biden is blowing a golden political opportunity. OK, so you go through all the things that Biden is blowing or close to blowing. So again, tr trigger warning, if you want the fan fiction, you might want to go someplace else. But before we, we get into all of this, um, you know, once again, uh, I want to talk about Bill Barr, but I also want to talk about, you know, the president continuing to push the the, the, the big lie. And he it's it feels like he's escalating it almost on a daily basis, that you have to believe more and more and more. Uh, Mitt Romney had some comments about uh, the president's performance at the rally in Ohio. This is uh, Mitt Romney over the week. But I also think, uh, frankly, Jake, that here in the U.S., there's a growing recognition that this is a bit like WWF, uh, that it's entertaining, uh, but it's not real. And I know people want to say, yeah, they believe in the big lie in some cases, but I think people recognize that it's a lot of show and and um, and bombast, but it's going nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, the election is over. It was uh, it was fair. Uh, look, uh, the, the president was saying it was crying foul on election night and actually before election night. And the question is, what were his sources of information? Where did he hear that the election had been fraudulently uh, carried out? Did he hear it from the Justice Department? No. Did he hear it from the intelligence community? No. So where did he hear it from? The MyPillow guy? Rudy Giuliani? Yep. What were their sources of information? I mean, it's pretty clear. Yeah. The election was fair. Uh, it wasn't the outcome that the president wanted, but let's move on. Yeah, well, we haven't moved on. It's obvious. I mean, the the audit continues, or the, the, the fake audit continues in Arizona. You've had uh, more than a dozen state Republican legislatures uh, send observers down there uh, in Wisconsin. The, the speaker has hired a bunch of former cops to look into the election. Um, wasn't enough for the uh, the petulant one down in Mar-a-Lago who issued a statement denouncing all of the uh, uh, Republicans in Wisconsin. But in any case, so who, uh, Josh, let's, let's start with Bill Barr for a moment. Um, this is an interesting story. This Jonathan Carl uh, piece in The Atlantic is fascinating. Uh, Jonathan Carl's written a book that's excerpted in The Atlantic. And he writes, you know, Barr had been widely seen as a Trump lackey who politicized the Justice Department. But when the big moment came after the election, he defied the president who expected him to do his bidding. And then quotes Barr basically saying, look, he knew that it was bullshit all along. It was it was put up or shut up time, Barr told me. If there was evidence of fraud, I had no motive to suppress it. But my suspicion all the way along was there was nothing here. It was all bullshit. We realized from the beginning it was just bullshit. So, I mean, that's good. You know, that's that's good and necessary, but um, not really sufficient to launder Barr's reputation, is it? 
Yeah, you know, I disagree with what Mitt Romney said in, in that soundbite about the sort of the Trump movement being something of a kabuki show. Yeah. I mean, I, I think his, his belief that people were promoting this kind of fan fiction, Trump fan fiction for fun, was really disabused on January 6th that, you know, enough people actually believe this stuff that actually hold these these crazy conspiracy theories and are willing to act on, on, on it. So, I mean, I, maybe I had the Mitt Romney point of view before January 6th. I think there's plenty of evidence, plenty of data showing that a, a sizable minority of, of Republican aligned, Trump aligned voters believe this stuff. You, you, you tell a lie so many times, you believe it to be true. And all you have to do is look at what the president is putting out. Uh, you mentioned Bill Barr, Charlie. You know, he built, Trump this morning put out a statement lambasting his former attorney general, going after him for not being loyal, for speaking out about the credibility of, of the election process. This is who Trump is. He demands 100% abject loyalty for everything, including these crazy conspiratorial schemes that he's cooked up in, in his head. And, you know, as you've talked about on, on this podcast and the bulwark, you know, if, if it was a kabuki show, you wouldn't see what, what's going on in Arizona, a swing state where Republicans in positions of leadership are, you know, looking for uh, irregularities and ballots that are per were perfectly legally cast, like looking for bamboo and ballots, trying to undermine the the credibility of their elections, where which is, is, is hugely damaging for the Republican Party in Arizona, which still remains a, a pretty Republican-leaning, you know, battleground state. So this is um, – it's not a kabuki show. The fact that Trump is throwing Bill Barr now under the bus um, and rolling the bus over him a couple extra times shows how deep these conspiracies run how um, ingrained they are. And, 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 you know, I don't think this is a majority of the Republican Party, but it's there are enough voters to make a big difference in, in these primary elections. And yeah, I mean, it, 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 is, it, it is a threat that we have to remain vigilant. Towards. No, I, 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 I tend to agree with you, Josh. And, and then this is really kind of an extraordinary thing when you think about it. The Bill Barr up until um, up until the very, very end had established his credibility. You would think that he would have established his credibility with, with MAGA world by his loyalty, by his willingness to, to do whatever Trump uh, said. I mean, he obviously is a, you know, I mean, I am highly critical of him, but you know, he's, he was a respected figure on the right in Trump world. Correct. And, and yet his break from the big lie, um, which is so definitive and so clear and so forceful has had little or no impact on opinion in the, in MAGA world. I mean, this is an interesting, I mean, once again, a kind of a reminder, you know, that Trump is the alpha and the omega in, in this cult and the loyalty has to be absolute that there's only one standard of judging truth. So the attorney general of the United States who had been uh, the Trumpiest of, you know, Trumpians breaks bad and yet doesn't seem to even registered on this. I mean, not even a blip. He's now Liz Cheney, politically speaking. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. Liz Cheney, uh, six months ago, was yeah. considered about as conservative as they come. Now, Democrats, she gets more favorable numbers from Democrats than Republicans. Then This is the tribalism. We talk about this all the time on the yeah. show, Charlie. This is the tribalism that, of, of this political moment where there is no judgment about substance. It's all about uh, loyalty to the Republican Party, at least, loyalty to one man. And look, I think there is some nuance. I, we, I think if you look at the data, there are people who are reasonable, maybe on policy grounds, but hold on to some of the, the, these, uh, you know, conspiracy theories or, you know, still view Trump as, as the alpha and omega, as you said, Charlie. But so I think there's room for, 
you know, Republicans to kind of separate themselves from the true crazy while remaining loyal to Trump, politically speaking. But but th- that's the reality. You have to be loyal to Trump in order to thrive and succeed in, in today's Republican Party. Yeah. So the, so Trump issued a statement att- attacking Bill Barr, that Bill Barr was a disappointment in every sense of the word. Um, instead of doing his job, he did the opposite, told people within the Justice Department not to investigate the election, just like he did with the Mueller report and the cover up of crooked Hillary and Russia, 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 all in caps. They don't want to investigate the real facts. Bill Barr's weakness helped facilitate the cover up of the crime of the century, the rigged 2020 presidential election exclamation point. So, uh, you know, what's interesting about this is that Barr was willing to do absolutely everything, uh, lie about the Mueller report. Uh, he spread many of these baseless election lies in the run up to the election and immediately afterwards. And yet, even for this loyal, you know, this 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 loyal toady, there was a point, a breaking point. He just couldn't go past. So he and Mike Pence, you know, are, are interesting cases because they did. They spent years, right, as toadies doing everything. And then fine. And, and look, they knew who Donald Trump was. They knew what they were doing. This was a choice they made. They were doing everything possible to empower them until they they couldn't or just wouldn't anymore. And they get no points in MAGA world. None. Yeah. You look, you're not going to give Bill Barr a medal of courage. No. Uh, he does not deserve it. Uh, he, he's clearly thinking, I think, about his reputation in the history books. And that's why he's coming out, cooperated with with John Carl of ABC News to talk about his side of the story. You see Mike Pence sort of doing this. Actually, Pence is a more interesting case because yeah. I do think he does have political ambitions in a few years. And he is not uh, as slavishly loyal as, as he once was. He's decided to make something of a small break from Trump on January 6th. And look, I, I have a little more, I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but I think every politician, every public servant, and I said this during the Trump years, needed to draw their own personal line and, and say, like, this is the red line that, you know, we need to serve the government. We need we need to have, make sure government is functioning. That that entails some uncomfortable compromises, but there has to be a red line that, that you don't cross. And everyone um, who at least had some principles seems to have set some kind of red line, you know, whether it was Raffensperger, Liz Cheney, Bill, Bill Barr. And I think the red lines and the degree of bravery is different on each of them, but they set their own red lines. You have another cohort that doesn't have any lines at all, and, and they continue to spout these crazy lies or they continue not to speak out, uh, 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 you know, to challenge the crazy that that continues to take place from the former president's office. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone kind of has their line drawn differently. But I do think that that having a line in the first place is something important. Yeah, but but everyone who had a line is now excommunicated. And the folks who obviously have no lines or are prepared to erase their lines are in the ascendancy. I mean, I'm thinking of Nikki Haley. I'm thinking of, you know, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy and, and others who, I mean, the, the contrast between Barr and Pence, who had been, you know, all in, all in, all in until they had to break, um, and, the, and the others who continue to sort of scurry back into Donald Trump's favor is, is really, it's, it's actually kind of striking how, how people like Nikki Haley are moving in the opposite direction of Bill Barr, which I have to say was not on my dance card. Didn't see that coming. Or Pence. I mean, you and, know whose and, line is interesting, Charlie? It's it's Mitch McConnell's line. Yeah, I know. Right? And, and this is a cynical political line, but it's one that leaves uh, maximum flexibility for a lot of aspiring Republican politicians. He, he condemned Trump's behavior and then kind of slowly tiptoed away from saying anything 
after he realized that that a majority of the Republican Party voters uh, liked and continue to support Donald Trump. But what he did did do was not do what Nikki Haley did, which was kind of get ahead of her skis. And, and I, I, she said he's I think she, Haley believes she said that he wouldn't be remembered in history fondly, something along those lines. Well, then she had to walk that back and she looks like a cynical politician just playing to the crowd. Um, that's not a place you want to be in, in the Republican Party. It's just from a political standpoint, it's better to kind of tiptoe your way around Trump rather than try to swerve in all kinds of different directions and, and leave yourself with no supporters at all. Okay, so let's 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 switch gears and talk about uh, Biden's wild weekend, the wild infrastructure weekend. You got a piece. Uh, Biden is blowing, blowing a golden political opportunity. Uh, the subhead is this week the president could have sealed a bipartisan win on infrastructure, forged a tougher approach on rising violent crime. He would do well to take a page from Eric Adams' playbook. Eric Adams, who appears to be poised to be the next mayor of New York City. So so talk to me about the the, the golden political op- – first of all, what is the political opportunity that Biden is blowing? What, what's what's there? What should he be doing? Look, this, this past week was something of a fork-in-the-road moment for Biden, uh, almost a chance to reset his presidency in, in a productive direction. Uh, he had the opportunity to really – celebrate unequivocally a bipartisan win on a, on a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that he helped negotiate, that he got apparently 10 Republicans at least to, to, to at least tentatively, tentatively support. That, that, that should have been a spike the football moment for President Biden. And it was one that lives up to his campaign promise of working together, of, of taking on the cynics that nothing can get done in Washington. It should have been a high point of his presidency. And then we saw what actually happened, which is that an hour or two after he met with Republican and Democratic senators negotiating that compromise, he said, well, he would veto his own bill if there weren't another you know, trillions of six trillion dollars, I believe, uh, in, in extra money being spent as part and on a partisan basis. Uh, he literally not only ties this, this, this is the, this is the two track. So you'd have one would be the bipartisan compromise. And then as the sort of the sop to the progressives in this in his party, they would have a separate bill that would go through just on strictly re- reconciliation. So, I mean, which everybody kind of knew there was two tracks, but nobody thought he would say that he would couple them together that way, saying that that if the big partisan bill wasn't uh, wasn't passed, then he would veto the bill that he just negotiated and endorsed. Well, and then, and then Charlie, he walked back his own veto threat with a lengthy, confusing statement on on Saturday afternoon. But then you had one of his top advisors, Cedric Richmond, go on the Sunday shows and and, and walking that statement back and saying he he, he didn't say whether he'd even sign his own infrastructure bill unless you have, again, $6 trillion potentially in additional spending uh, on a bill that's a a poison pill. I mean, you know, if he wants to compromise on that, on, on, on family welfare, social welfare, there's an opportunity to do that. But if you're trying to play to the Bernie crowd, um, you're, 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 you're throwing a poison pill in what should have been a, a big bipartisan win for it. Okay, so, so there, there's there's two ways of looking at this. One is that it was just a verbal gaffe. The second is, and, and you talk about this in your article, this is an indication of the way that Biden um, is, is really sort of caught between the 
rock and the hard place that that he's he's still beholden to that Bernie wing, right? So I mean, that's, that's you, right. you're right. But Biden is showing he's being held hostage by his party's progressive faction rather than demonstrating his own political muscle to accomplish what he campaigned on. So th- that that was obviously the motivation there is to show the progressives, okay, I'm making this deal with the Republicans, but but you're still going to get uh, everything you want. Yeah, he said the quiet part out loud. I mean, he's been, I mean, it shows that he's been playing something of a cynical game where you have Pelosi and Schumer publicly saying what Biden said last week, that you had to have these two things connected together or they wouldn't pass. But that's not Biden is president. He's not Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi uh, don't run the White House. And, you know, successful presidents, Trump included, like he got controlled his party. He he was able to set the tone uh, for where his party is. And if you defied the president, God, God help you. Obama the same way, by the way, Obama. There were a lot of dissenters, uh, more mod- there were actually a lot more moderates and more. There were a lot of progressives in, in Obama's time. And yet the party stuck together. They did not dare defy their leader. Um, Biden had a lot of political capital to spend. And instead, he, you know, ended up being essentially held hostage to what Bernie Sanders wants in this in this subsequent legislation. So, yeah. I mean, he he didn't benefit politically. He probably hurt himself at a moment where he could have really uh, benefited um, from, from uh, you know, essentially accomplishing one of his big campaign promises. And now, I mean, we'll see w- whether Republicans uh, are willing to give him the votes uh, to get the infrastructure side of, of, of the deal passed. It does seem like some of the more pragmatic senators went on the Sunday shows, Mitt Romney, Bill Cassidy, mm-hmm. saying that they still will support the, the infrastructure bill. But the White House needs 10 Republicans, not, not just five. Um, and, and there are some wavering Republican senators. And McConnell himself today came out with a statement saying that unless Schumer and Pelosi also walk back that that connection between the the infrastructure bill and, and this and the social welfare bill, that that that's not going to be good enough. What Biden said. So. Well, yeah, you, you understand. I mean, look, th- this is this is central to the uh, to the Biden presidency. So therefore, Mitch McConnell has a huge incentive to do whatever he can to to derail it, not to not give Biden a win. Look, I, I, I think there's no other way to look at this other than this was a massive blunder. This was a gaffe. This wasn't just a regular gaffe. This was a gaffe that could have derailed Biden's presidency. So in many ways, you saw Joe Biden at his worst, his undisciplined mouth. Um, on the other hand, I'm going to push back on you a little bit on all of this. It looks like over the weekend, he did work the phones. He did massage the egos. He did, you know, issue the various statements. And yes, uh, you know, his spokesman was was awful on television yesterday. Um, but it does appear that things are back on track. It appears there's so many things that can go wrong. Uh, we know this. It's going to require, you know, a, a lot of you know, acrobatic skill and everything. But you know, given and again, and this is the, my, my sort of my, my take on this that okay, it looked like this huge win on Thursday looked like an absolute complete clusterfuck um, on Friday and Saturday, but then it looks like he's pulled things back together again, and and just, not every president could have put this back together. So this again is kind of the secret sauce of his presidency, right? The trust and the credibility that he's built up over the years with his former colleagues that they believe him. When he calls him and says, look, I'm not going to do this. Uh, that's not going to, to happen. So in many ways, yeah, it did look like he had blown this golden opportunity, but that golden opportunity is still there. And so we had the worst on display, but we also have the his strength on display. So you know, a little bit premature on your obituary, I'm thinking. 
Well, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll, well, we'll yeah. see. I mean, yeah. I, I, I certainly would, would give him yeah. credit if, if, if you still have the 10 Republicans necessary to pass the infrastructure bill. He had, on Thursday, 11 Republicans, I believe, on record saying that they would support it. Um, now, uh, that's a lot shakier, even even yeah. with the, 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 the work he did over the weekend. So, look, I'll, 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 be, I'll give him another grade, if, and I'll backtrack. If, if he does get those 10 Republicans to support the bill and that he gets his own part. Keep in mind, it's not just about Republicans. It's getting Schumer and Pelosi to backtrack from their own sort of uh, unequivocal statements that they they only would, would pass this and get it through Congress with a complimentary bill that spends a lot more money. So it's not just on the Republican. And that's the tricky day. He had uh, a big part of that accomplished, and then he ended up I know it up, but now he has to put the pieces of the puzzle back together. Well, well that that's right. That's why then and and it's not it is not a done deal yet. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, this is so, so, so fragile. I have to tell you though, when I heard what Pelosi said and what Schumer said and and the veto threat, I mean, I mean, look, I'm I'm sitting here in Wisconsin. I'm not I'm I'm not, you know, an insider in Washington. I'm thinking this is really stupid. This is gonna blow everything up. There's no way that these moderate Republicans are going to vote for something knowing that it has now become absolutely linked with stuff they would never support. I mean, they th- this is as close to a literal poison pill in legislation you can get. And how did they not see that? How did they not understand that? Okay, so Biden may have just shot his mouth off, but Pelosi must have known what she was doing. And so, you know, yes, uh, Biden may be you know, beholden to the progressive ring, but it, it did occur to me that, Nancy Pelosi's only got a five vote margin. She's got no wiggle room whatsoever. It's going to be much harder for her to back off from this. To, for sure, Charlie. But keep, I mean, the presidency matters. Look, look at the last two administrations. And when the president says something and what he wants, you're not going to defy the president of your own party. Or if you do, you know, there will be a lot of mu- political muscle or threats going to those lawmakers that dared cross on either Donald Trump or Barack Obama. You look at the polls, Democrats support Joe Biden. He has a deep reservoir of support within his party. Uh, If you're president, you spend that political capital. If you you truly want bipartisanship, you spend political capital to get it. So the notion that, I mean, certainly, I mean, we saw this all the time in the Trump years where McConnell was seen as an all, all. one of the savviest strategists in Washington. But when Trump wanted something, when he when he wanted that, what was it, that that $2,000 checks, you know, McConnell ended up having to bend, right? I mean, we saw this with, with the Iran deal and Obama, where Obama had to deal with a lot of res- reticent Democrats in his own party, but Democrats were not going to cross their president. Um, Biden has a lot of political capital to draw from right now, and he needs to use it. That, that This was an opportunity to use it and not let Pelosi and Schumer and and, and Bernie Sanders, really, and 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 and, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, second term uh, lawmaker, to run the show in Washington. Yeah, you can. I mean, you know, the, the the real danger, of course, is that you know Bernie Sanders or, or or AOC will back off, you know, and will not vote for the package. But but to do that, they'd have to be willing to really torpedo the Biden presidency um, and basically launch a civil war within the Democratic Party right before the midterm elections. And I. Think or slash hope that they would be reluctant to do that. Okay, so let's talk about the other piece uh, of, of your article, of your of your piece about uh, Biden blowing a golden opportunity. This is a much trickier issue for Democrats, and and I still don't think they've got their hands around the problem of crime. Um, the uh, the president did give a speech on crime last week, laying out his crime agenda. You were not that impressed. 
No. Um, and, I, and I compared it to Eric Adams, uh, who that same week, actually a day before Biden gave that speech on crime, uh, won or at least won the first round pretty comfortably in the mayoral race in a deep blue city. Well, how did he do it? Because he spoke uncomfortable truths to the you know 30 percent of progressives of the party in order to win over the moderate wing, in order to, to, to win over the majority of the American public. And that was a winning political formula. We, we used to call it, I guess, in Bill Clinton's time, these moments were called sister soldier moments because he took on an extreme faction in his own party to, to win over uh, the majority of the American public. I think it should be called the malarkey moment and a malarkey opportunity for Joe Biden to take on, you know, as a plain spoken son of Scranton to take on sort of the craziness um, the extremes in his own party, like Eric Adams did, to great success in that New York City mayoral race. And look, I, I watched the speech that that Biden gave. Um, you know, it was you could have given that speech at any time. You could have said the same things about gun control, assault weapons ban, community spending for for um, you know neighborhood services. These are not new ideas. These are uh, frankly. Um, they're not dealing with the core problems that, that, that New York City and a lot of other big cities are facing right now. In fact, you know, one of the big things that Biden talked about was, you know, an assault weapons ban. We've heard this from Democrats for, for quite some time. Eric Adams actually responded to Biden when he when he won uh, the May or when he finished in first place in the mayoral race, saying that almost all the crimes in New York City are not being committed with assault weapons. They're being committed with just ordinary handguns. It's almost rebuking Biden's uh, address himself. Um, you know, look, I, there was a great story in the New York Times last week looking at the degree of um, resignations, re- retirements, demoralization mm-hmm. in, in police departments across the country. I mean, Joe Biden used to be the senator who was championing police. He wrote the crime bill in 1994. He's someone who speaks uh, with, with a certain, uh, you know, he has spoken at least with a certain credibility on these issues. And yet he's either afraid of, of challenging that 25, 30 percent of progressives within his own party, or he's just totally, um, you know, unwilling to to kind of show that kind of leadership uh, and, and dealing with some of the more uncomfortable truths about about crime and and what's going on in a lot of these major American cities that are seeing just this sizable crime spike over the last year. All right. So what should he have said to address that? You said this could have been his malarkey moment. So what should uh, Joe Biden have said in that speech that would have seized this golden political opportunity? Well, I think he should have taken a lesson from Eric Adams. Yeah. One of the sound bites that Eric Adams used throughout the campaign, repeated it everywhere, um, was he basically said the prerequisite for prosperity is public safety. If you don't solve crime, you're not going to be able to deal with anything else. So he should have, number one, underscored the importance of, of getting a hold on, on crime, not denying that there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party denying that this is even a problem. Um, really? Biden clearly isn't saying that, but he he's not talked about it until, until this past week. So clearly, I think he needed to underscore the importance of, of, of this issue for, for voters across the country. Uh, I think he should, I mean, his, his moment where he should have challenged the, 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 the progressives within his own party is about supporting the police and, and calling out some of these groups that, that seem to have a, a very uh, critical view of, of, of police forces. It doesn't mean you can't support reforms. It doesn't mean you can't support um, you know, ways to improve police forces across the country. But there's no doubt that like police are, are about as demoralized as they've been in decades. I, I urge listeners to read the, the mm-hmm. article in the New York Times focusing on Asheville, North Carolina, but looking at the data in other cities and other 
police forces across the country. It's staggering. Pol- police policemen are, are resigning, retiring. Uh, the they're, they're, there's a clear correlation between the cities where where the the demoralization is is most significant and the spike in in crime. So I mean that's an issue. I think Biden really needs to get a handle on and needs to affect the public opinion within his own party to say, hey, we can be for reform. We can support this police reform bill that, that may end up passing along bipartisan lines without attacking the police, without without uh, being, being uh, you know, going going above and beyond what's necessary. Without, and without, also, without I, stereotypes, you point out in the piece, uh, you know, you could challenge the base to stop stereotyping police, right? I mean, not, I mean, every, the, not, not everybody's Derek Chauvin. Right. In the New York Times article quoted a few uh members of the, I believe the Asheville, North Carolina police force that basically said they're now viewed as the bad guys. I mean, that, that that's pretty remarkable, Charlie. And I think there could have been a line in that speech where Biden says, you, you're, you're the you're the heart and soul of our country. You keep communities safe. Uh, we need you on, on the front lines. I mean, you know, I could come up with a line in my head about how you can really boost the morale of, of, of the police force uh, across the police forces across the country. That wasn't there. I also think this bail law in New York City, which, right. which Adams and maybe he doesn't want to get involved in local politics in, in one jurisdiction. But there are a lot of major cities that are kind of adopting or considering the, these laws that, you know, in New York City, the bail reform law is clearly far too permissive and has allowed violent criminals to, you know, basically roam the streets and not have to, 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 to stay in prison, um, even after committing repeat offenses. I, I, you know, maybe that's not appropriate for, for a national speech because he doesn't want to delve into New York City politics, but it's an issue that's really a problem in New York. It's okay, Adams, the, Adams yeah. was talking about. He said that this is this is really I, I think important. I mean, there have been a number of uh, there have been a number of studies and polls suggesting you know that that African American voters are not as um, you know you know progressive on law and order as I think some people in the Democratic Party think. But um, the, the the Adams victory in New York City really deserves for people to spend a lot of time on. I mean, it really does, because, you know, this is a very, very progressive city. Um, crime clearly was at the centerpiece. It really was the sort of the ultimate discrediting of the of the defund uh, the police movement, but also. This bail reform law, which, as you point out, has essentially turned uh, the criminal justice system into this revolving door. I was listening to an, uh, an interview the other day with some New York cops who were talking about how demoralizing it was for them to arrest violent criminals and to see them back out on the street pretty much before the paperwork was was finished. And this is the kind of thing that Eric Adams ran on and liberal New Yorkers voted against. So the question is, you know, is there any possibility that nationally a guy like Joe Biden could say, look, um, you know, if we take public safety seriously, we need to do X, Y and Z and we need to stop doing some of these things that progressive district attorneys are doing and, and these bail laws. I don't know how his base would react to that. I mean, this goes back to this question of. Uh, you know, that he wants to appeal to the center, but he's also tethered. He, you, you know that he'd be denounced by that minority um, uh, progressive wing that actually does engage in the, the, the kind of the anti-police rhetoric. Well, clearly that minority was not nearly as large in one of the bluest cities in the country as a lot of these uh, Democratic leaders advocated for that view would believe. Uh, look at look at uh, Terry. I mean, you also can look at the Virginia governor's race, uh, Terry McAuliffe and, and a bunch of more progressive candidates talking about a more progressive position on these criminal justice issues. It wasn't even close. So it was a, about a two to one victory for for the more moderate position. So, I mean, you can see these 
activists making a lot of noise on Twitter, on social media. Um, but even in one of the most liberal cities in the entire country, the Maya Wiley position only was able to get, you know, about a quarter of the, of the Democratic primary vote. Uh, that is not a large number. And, uh, you know, Adams' success in the most um, working class, the most diverse parts of New York City, I mean, he carried in, he came in first place in every one of the boroughs, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. The only one he didn't was the borough of Manhattan, where a lot of affluent white liberals live. Um, and he did worse than those types of, 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 of precincts and communities. Um, so this is sort of a bougie issue for very uh, left-wing white progressives in, in, in the country, especially in New York City. But it's not a winning issue even for Democrats. And Adams' strong performance underscores that. It shows that if Joe Biden decided to go in the Eric Adams direction, he would probably win support, not just from moderates, not just from independents, but but even from some liberals that uh, are, are are sick and tired of, of the rising crime in their communities. You know, um, I, I got to give you uh, some, some credit here because I recall that you were writing about this last year, warning that this crime issue was going to be a problem, a potential problem for a Biden administration. You wrote that even before the election, that this was going to be an, an issue for Biden. And clearly Republicans have figured out that soft on crime is going to be central to their campaign. I, I, I do, you know, over in the, um, you know, in the uh, the progressive uh, echo, echo chamber, there's just not a lot of talk and buzz about this issue of public safety. You go over to the right wing, uh, you know, media, and this it's it's about to be twenty four seven. I mean, yeah, it I is, and, and and I'm just not sure that Democrats understand how potent an issue this is, um, and you know, not just in urban areas, but but among those suburban swing voters as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was writing about it before even Republicans yeah. used it as a political cudgel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it doesn't take a, a you don't have to have a much of an imagination to think that if you're going to pass like a bail law that was passed in New York City that lets criminals with with serious track records off the hook and onto the streets it's going to lead to to negative results i mean that doesn't take much of a political imagination yet you seem to have as you note charlie this echo chamber of progressive uh, of a progressive bubble that isn't able to think about the the, the unintended consequences of, of some of their actions um yeah i mean it's not good politically for for biden look i, I think he understands the reason he gave the speech to address the issue at all is that he understands that if this trend continues and, and now Democrats, there was a point in time where Democrats were saying, oh, it's because of the pandemic. And when the pandemic's over, this is going to go away. The numbers have gotten worse since in most cities since um, since since the spring. So, I mean, he realized this is this is the trend is worrisome. Yeah. If it gets worse, it could be a big, big political problem. And uh, you remember 2014, Charlie, where, you know, the culture wars <laughs> gave Republicans nine seats in the Senate, allowed them to take back the majority. Big wave election. And this is the same. These I mean, this is a cultural issue that affects people on a day to day basis. It's not just a culture war issue in that you argue about it on Fox News. It's a cultural issue that affects a whole lot of voters uh, in their day to day lives. And it's a voting issue. Uh, and if Democrats don't get a handle on this and don't take on their own extremes, they're going to face a significant political backlash. See, I, I guess here's the, here's the here's the problem is because they they know that the the whole you know you Democrats want to defund the police is unfair and untrue because they don't all want to defund the police, but it is true that there are some who do want to do that and 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 don't send me lots of emails explaining what defund the police means. Some of the policies that you're describing 
were enacted by people who, quite frankly, do not seem to take public safety as seriously as they should. And and we know that a handful of anecdotes um, can be incredibly potent in our politics. OK, so let's move on from this. I, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Trump going to Ohio and, and, and how this is all playing. He didn't spend much time um, supporting the candidates in Ohio, the local candidates. It's all about him. And it, it really is kind of a this, this double-edged sword, the effect that he's going to have on the midterms, whether or not he's going to have the same suppressive effect that he had in Georgia. But I noticed that you tweeted out um, a reference to this Echelon Insight, Insight survey that found in June that 53% of Republican voters now consider themselves to be primarily a supporter of the GOP rather than Trump. Now, that's up from 30% last October. So do you see that as a real shift and what's its significance? I think it is significant. Uh, significant. I, I think, you know, since we, we talk about politics on a daily basis, it's yeah. sometimes easy to grow impatient about how long it takes to affect democracy and public opinion. Um, but we've been seeing some small but significant movement away from Trump in a lot of these recent public polls where more and more Republicans claim that they identify more with the Republican Party than they do with Trump. Now, look, 30 percent, 35 percent of people who will do whatever Trump says, that's still a large number. And, and, and that's I think it was 30 percent in this echelon poll that uh, said they're still more loyal to Trump than the Republican Party. But we do have some pretty big tests of Trump's political capital in the coming year that was going to set the stage for the midterms. It could expose Trump as, as sort of the the, 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 the wizard, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz who doesn't have quite as much power as he claims he does and not having his Twitter feed, not having Facebook, that, that could diminish his influence quite a bit. Uh, he endorsed this guy, Max Miller, a former staffer, against Anthony Gonzalez, the congressman who voted uh, for his impeachment. Look, if, if, if Miller doesn't win, um, that's, a, that, that's a sign that Trump's magic in the, in the Republican Party is not what it used to be. And I think the even bigger test is taking place in North Carolina in the Senate race there, where you have a former governor, um, Pat McCrory, running, seems to be the front runner because he was well-known, well-liked, well uh, former Republican statewide official. And he, Trump endorsed a little-known congressman uh, who's running in the primary, Ted Budd, against him. So Trump is really like picking some some long shots um, and, and really testing his his political power within the Republican Party. If, if, if these folks don't win primaries in the in, in spring of 2022, boy, that would be a pretty telltale sign that these numbers are telling you something that, that you know, there may be 35 percent of diehard Trump supporters. But you can build a majority coalition with people who like Trump, but but aren't willing to just go along with everything that, that he says and does. You know, I have not spent a lot of time talking about the uh, crim ongoing criminal investigation into Trump and the Trump organization. Um, we, we know that this week there may be charges uh, issued by the, the Manhattan DA against the Trump organization, maybe against uh, his former you know, chief chief accountant. Um, my sense is that I, I you know, given the given the dynamics that we've seen, people shouldn't be surprised to hear that this, even an indictment, is not going to dent Trump's support among the hardcore base, is it? It is. It just will allow him to play that victim card more aggressively. So I, I don't know that that's going to 
derail him. I, I, I just I just sense that people are putting too much hope in these investigations to rid themselves of the, you know, troublesome, you know, orange guy. But, you know, no, it's that, that I don't see that happening. Do you? Yeah, Trump or, or, himself famously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue well, right. and his supporters would still be with him. The, the, the notion, I mean, the Trump supporters view the legal system as part of the deep state, right? I mean, this, the hardcore supporters aren't going to view uh, the, any, any legal proceedings, you know, run by, you know, led by Democratic prosecutors as, as legitimate. It's it's not it's not right, but that that's how they view the, the world. Uh, that's how they view these institutions. So, no, I mean, politically speaking, it's not going to move the needle hardly at all, even if even if things move down the pike on these legal investigations. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yes. Yeah, yeah, but we'll but we'll you know, ignoring Trump is 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 the secret sauce. I mean that that is what 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 kills Trump's power, not paying attention to his rants, not giving him oxygen. That is the the dynamic that's gonna really we're already seeing that with his him not able to get on Twitter and Facebook, whether you agree with that or not. But the reality of that is he has much smaller of a megaphone and he is not uh, being heard quite as loudly as he was when he was president and he had access to those platforms. So ignoring him in the mainstream media and in, on the social media platforms um, is, is a, you know, good tactic. It's, you know, he got to the nomination in part because he got wall to wall coverage on, on every cable news network. Right. I mean, that, that was what one, one big factor in get, getting him the momentum to win the nomination in the first place. And he's losing a little bit of that oxygen now that he can't, you know, I don't think even Fox didn't cover his, his Saturday. Uh, speech well, that was, that was interesting. I, that's an interesting data point that it used to be that everybody would cover his rallies. Now Fox News is not even covering the rallies. I think only OAN or Newsmax uh, might have might have might have done that. Um, and you know, you know, again, this is just an indication that it's not it's not the same thing. So, what else are you looking at this week? What are you What are you watching now for the next for the next four or five days? Well, look, as we talked about um, the future of this infrastructure package, yeah. the, the, the the trajectory of how this other social spending bill, uh, the, the, we'll, we'll, we'll see that hashed out uh, in the coming days. We'll, we'll get to see if Schumer or Pelosi walk back their positions. We'll see if Republicans beyond uh, the core four go and, and say that they're willing to support the deal, even even with what happened over the weekend. Um, so that, that that's a big, big, big thing in, in Washington. Um, you know, I also we, I've talked about this on the show before, too, but the other crime is one big social um, cultural war that that's being debated. The issue of critical race theory. Right, and right. that's another issue I've written about long before right. Republicans kind of jumped on that political bandwagon. But that that because that also affects um you know, people on a day-to-day basis, their, their kids' education. That's something that is legitimate. It's something that's going to be litigated, I think, in, in governor's races and in, in the next midterm election. And it's not something to sleep on. I think it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a big issue, just like crime. Is a well, it's, it's partially legitimate and partially illegitimate. I mean, it's legitimate to say that uh, you can make an intellectual critique of critical race theory, and, and I've certainly pushed back on it. Um, it's illegitimate in the sense that you have, you know, demagogues like Christopher Rufo, who want to basically make anything that makes you uncomfortable about race, uh, anything that, that annoys you uh, is critical race theory or this notion somehow that it's spreading um, through, you know, K-12 classrooms, which there's no evidence that that's actually happening. But but you're, you're right. This is again. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. Charlie, it's what? happening. In, I'm, I'm in Fairfax County, a suburban. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, ha- it's definitely a big issue here. And it's real. It's it's legit. The debates going on in the school board about revamping a lot of the, the mission statement of, of the county school system next door in Loudoun County. It's, it's, it's literally 
a galvanizing issue to the point where you have no, the right. school board meetings. I mean, it, it, you talk about we talked about the Tea Party movement before and how, how big of, how a lot of folks slept on that until it became the defining issue of the 2010 midterms. I think that there are a lot of similarities between this and, and I, I think dismissing it and, and not seeing how widespread it's become. I think that, that, that that's a mistake. Well, I know it's a mistake to think it's not a, it's not a potent issue because again these these anecdotes can be very very powerful. On the other hand, the the misuse of the term. So I don't know what's going on in Fairfax County, but look, there there are uh, dealing with the issue of race in schools is complicated. It's going to be fraught, and there's going to be this this attempt to label everything as critical race theory. When some of it may be yes, and some of it has no relationship to it whatsoever. So I, I this is one where I'm I'm afraid that anybody that stands in the middle and says, okay, um, can we be reasonable about this, is going to be shouted down in 2022, and that's and that's dangerous. Josh Crashauer, thank you once again for joining me on the podcast. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be on. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.